bless God. How many of you are thankful for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Amen. Would you stand for the reading of God's word here this morning? We want to move into this very quickly for his glory. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open them with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 12. And we've been reading this throughout this series. And um, today I just pray as we read it for the last time, as far as this series is concerned, that your hearts would be filled with hope as you consider these words. Hope. You know, only Christians have true hope. Only. Because for true hope, you would need something that extends beyond the grave. And only in Jesus Christ do we have hope of everlasting life. Can you say amen to that? So let your hearts be filled with hope as we read this. Colossians 1 and verse number 12 we begin with. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." And Father, we just seek your understanding in these things. Lord, these are too high for us to comprehend in our own minds. So we need you to move upon us by your Holy Spirit so that we may understand these things. And more importantly, we may apply them to our lives and live as we are called to live in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for it. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. Give the Lord praise in His house. One last time before you're seated. Amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him in Jesus' name. Well, today we are going to finish a series that we have been in over the last few weeks that we have simply called None But Christ. And in this series we have been exploring, we have been examining the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, that word supreme literally means to be above all others, 
to be superior to all others in power, authority, and in status. And that is what we have been asserting throughout this series. And more importantly, that is what Scripture asserts. That Jesus Christ is superior to all others in power, authority, and status. Jesus said, coming out of the grave, all power and all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus has been highly exalted and that he has been given a name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is none like Christ There is none but Christ. And yet Jesus one day said to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And what we have said throughout this entire series, and we conclude with it today, and that is that that question is by far the most important question that you and I will ever entertain throughout our life. Because who you say Jesus is, is shaping and forming the choices and the decisions that you make every day. It is even determining the direction that you take in life. Even if you are a skeptic here this morning. Even if you are here today and you would say, I haven't decided yet who Jesus is You need to understand that even your choices and even your decisions and the direction that you take in life is being made by your indecision, by your skepticism. All that we do on Sunday morning is report what the Word of God says, what we have come to believe, and then we leave it in your hands to make the decision of what you're going to do with this man named Jesus Christ. But when you consider the teachings of Jesus himself, where he stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes into the Father except through me, it would be well for all of us to weigh out his true biblical identity, because trust me, folks, eternity is riding on your choice. We need to choose wisely for the glory of God. Now, we have been looking at this through the lens that is provided for us in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians living in the ancient city of Colossae. And he was addressing the very same issue that we have been addressing, actually. It's it's interesting. This letter, as I told you, uh, was written about 30 years after Jesus walked on this earth. And they were already attacking his essential nature and character. They were teaching at that time that Jesus was not God in the flesh. That it was impossible for God to actually come and live in a physical body because they taught that the physical body was inherently evil and so it would therefore be impossible for God to take up residence within a physical body. They also taught that Jesus was not the only way to God. That Jesus was just merely one of many emanations. That he was one of many expressions of God, all through which you could get to God. That Jesus was not exclusively the way to the Father. And so the Apostle Paul, in order to equip those who were following him, wrote this letter because he wanted to reveal to them the true identity of Jesus Christ. 
And we need to look to the Word of God and make sure that we are following the true biblical Christ. Because when you consider the days that we are living in, when you consider how men and women misrepresent and mishandle the true biblical Christ, we need to know that we are following the true Christ who is revealed in Scripture so that we can build our lives upon a solid foundation that will last not only for a lifetime but for eternity in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Now so far we have looked at the fact that Jesus is our deliverer that He is our Redeemer, that He is the image of the invisible God, that He is the Creator of all things, and that He is the head of the church, being the firstborn from the dead. Now we need to move on really quickly. Now notice with me that Jesus is also preeminent. He is preeminent. At the very end of verse number 18, we read this, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. I love that word, preeminence. It literally meant in Paul's day to be first or to hold first place. And what Paul was saying here is that because Jesus has risen from the dead, he is alone preeminent, that he is first in all things and that he holds first place in all things, which simply means that in heaven he holds first place. He holds first place on earth. He holds first place in the visible world and he holds first place in the invisible world. He holds first place among powers and authorities on earth and he holds first place among powers and authorities in heavenly places. In all created things, he holds first place. But the real question that I want to ask you today is does he hold first place in your life? Now we've already established that he holds first place in all of creation. But what is really important is does he hold first place in your life? Because your eternal destiny is not being determined by whether he holds first place in all of eternity because we know he does. Your eternal destination is going to be determined by whether or not he holds first place in your life. Is he first in your life? Is he the first one you think of in the morning when you wake up? Is he the last one that you think of as you're drifting off to sleep in the evening? Is he first in your marriage? Is he first in your family? Is he first in your finances? Is he first in your future plans? Is he first in your choice of career? Is he first in all of your choices? Is he first in all of your decisions? Is he first in all of your relationships? Is he first in all of the decisions? that you make on a daily basis because folks if he is not Lord of everything then he is not Lord at all he will not share his glory with anyone and if he is not first in all things that pertain to your life then he is not first at all he is not Lord of your life Now, at this point, there are some people that are probably pushing back on that and saying, Pastor, you know, listen, let's be really practical here. You need to understand that I know you're trying to help us, but you've got to recognize that I have my spiritual life and then I have my secular life. And I have Jesus to go to for spiritual matters And I have counselors and therapists and experts and books to turn to for my secular life. 
Well, what I would ask you is, how's that working out for you? Because I don't know everything, but I do know this. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And if you think life can be divided like that, then you are sorely mistaken. You can't divide your life and have a spiritual life and have God over here and a secular life and you have experts over there. If you do that, you're going to be unstable in all your ways. You're going to be unstable in your walk with God. You're going to be unstable in your relationship with the earth. Because folks, you cannot serve two masters at one time. You're going to love one and hate the other. Folks, hear me today. We have one life. And we live it for the glory and for the honor of Almighty God. He is to be preeminent in all things. You say, can God help me with every area of my life? You better believe He can. And that's because of what Paul says next about Him. That He is the fullness of God. That He is the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. From the very beginning, it was the pleasure of the Father that in Christ all the fullness of God would dwell. Now what does that mean, the fullness of God? It literally means that all the divine power and all of the attributes of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would dwell in Christ bodily and permanently. Remember last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what that simply is saying is, because God is a spirit and no one has seen God at any time, God revealed his invisible nature, his invisible character in Christ. And here it is again. God knew that his attributes and his power were for all intent and purposes invisible. So he put his power and his divine attributes into Jesus so that for the 33 and a half years he was on this earth, he could reveal the Godhead and his attributes and his great power. Listen to what it says in Colossians 2 and verse 3. Same letter, just a little later. He says, In whom, Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Think about that. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That means that in Christ... God has hidden all of the treasures, all of the wealth, all of the value that comes with His wisdom and with His knowledge because in Christ dwells the fullness of God bodily and you are complete in Him. Which means that wholeness, that soundness, that completeness in man can never be found apart from Jesus Christ because He is everything in Jesus' mighty name. So what it means is that the more I get to know Christ... Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the more I am tapping into the treasures of His wisdom and power that are hidden in Jesus alone. Folks, do not leave Jesus out of your life because He is the fullness of God. And the more you know of Him, the more you're tapping in to the very divine power and attributes of God in Jesus' mighty name. Yes, give the Lord praise for that. Bless God. Now listen, listen to what he says in John 1 and verse 16. This is John speaking. He says, And of his fullness we have all received, those who have received Christ as Savior, 
and grace for grace. What does that mean? Grace for grace. It means that by God's grace or His divine influence, He has opened up our heart so that we can receive more grace. You and I have no ability to fully grasp the greatness of God, but by His grace, He has opened up the hearts of those who will believe upon Him so that they can receive even more grace and even more divine power and even more divine influence. Folks, the more we press into Him, the more that we know His wisdom and His knowledge and all of the treasures that come with it. Folks, He is everything that we need When we sing that old song, He's all I need. It's not just a nice song to sing. It is the reality. He is all that we need. Everything is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you that have been here for years, you remember a song that we used to sing here years ago that was just simply, You are my all in all. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Folks, He is all that we need. I thank God for wonderful, godly men and women that encourage us in the faith. But if I were all alone, I would still have Jesus. And He is all that I need in His great and mighty name. Can you say amen to that? He is the fullness of God. But He is also our reconciler. He is our reconciler. Look at verse number 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. He is our reconciler. Now, just bear with me for a few minutes. Because the implications of what we just read are staggering. And they extend much further than maybe what we would just think about as we're reading it. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. What does it mean to reconcile? The word reconciled there, and again, the original language, it meant to change from hostility to peace. It also carries the idea of settling differences or adjusting the differences. And so the idea of reconciliation is that you have two parties who have had differences arise within their relationship so that hostility has developed. And that hostility can never cease until there has been an adjustment of the differences. And once the adjustment of the differences take place... Then the hostility ceases and peace is resumed. Peace is restored. When we think of a husband and a wife who have reached an impasse where their differences have now led to hostility and they really can't even look at each other, they can't talk to each other, in order for them to be reconciled, they may need someone to step into the middle and listen to both sides and try to get them to adjust their differences so that in adjusting their differences, they can end the hostility and peace in their marriage can be restored. Well, can I tell you that that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for mankind. 
Jesus stepped between the hostility of man and God, adjusted our differences so that the hostility would cease and we would have peace with God again in His great name. You see, we were all enemies of God, all of us. In fact, verse 21 says it this way, And you who once were alienated or estranged from God and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. Before Christ, man was estranged from God by our own will, by our own choices, by our own decisions. Because we aggressively, and I would say even violently, suppress the truth about God that we instinctively knew to be true, that we might pursue selfish desires. That's how man became hostile towards God, became an enemy of God. We suppressed violently and aggressively the truth about God that we knew instinctively to be true so that we could pursue our own selfish desires. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now listen to this who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress there means to push down or to hold down. So literally he is saying, because you and I loved ourselves, because we loved our ways, we suppressed and held down and pushed down the truth about God because his existence was very inconvenient for our lifestyle. In fact, he goes on to say, because although they knew God, the issue is never whether people believe in God. Everyone believes in God. Now, they may tell you they don't believe in God, but everyone knows that there is a God. That is, that is a fact. It is in our heart. God wrote his existence into our heart. But although we knew God, we did not glorify him as God or acknowledge him as God, nor were we thankful for the life he gave us, but we became futile in our thoughts and our foolish hearts were darkened and hardened towards the Lord. And even as we did not like to retain God in our knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting." This is how man became separated from God. God gave us his law and put it in our heart. God wrote his existence in our heart. He wrote his existence in all of creation. He did everything that he could to reveal himself to mankind so that we would pursue him. But rather than being thankful for the life that he gave us, rather than glorifying him as God, we suppressed the truth of God because we wanted to live a selfish, self-centered life and live for our own desires. And so we suppressed that truth. We held Held it down until finally just God said, I'm going to give you over to that depraved mind so that you'll continue to be my enemy. And that was man's state. Estranged from God, separated from him. No one's looking for him. No one's going after him. But all of that changed 2,000 years ago when Jesus came looking for us. How many of you are thankful that 2,000 years ago God came looking for man in his son Jesus Christ. In fact, I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 and verse 4. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy. Turn to your neighbor and say, but God. Amen. Have you ever considered that statement, but God? Where would you be today had God not intervened? 
You would be dead today, but God. You'd be strung out on drugs today, but God. You would be messed up today, but God stepped in and he saved you and he delivered you, but God. Amen. Who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together. I love this part. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, for all of eternity, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What that literally means is that one day, he is going to use us as trophies and he's going to put us on display and declare to the whole universe the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness through Jesus Christ our Lord. We live for one reason and that is to reflect the very kindness and goodness and mercy of the living God Almighty. And if we're going to do it for all of eternity, we might as well do it right now. Why do we praise him when we come in here? Because we want to show forth the praises of the one who called us out of darkness to walk in his light. Come on, somebody, give God the praise for that if you believe it this morning. So there was hostility between man and God. And man had sinned against God. We were enemies against him. And there was nothing that we could do to make it right so that we could approach him. And God, as we have often said, and even in this series, was willing to forgive. But his problem was he had an obligation as a moral governor to punish criminals. To punish those who sin against his kingdom. And there was that tension. There was that hostility What could be done? We could not come to God on our own. We didn't even seek to come after God. And God wants to forgive, but he has justice that he has to uphold. In order for man to be reconciled to God, someone would have to come in who could represent man, but could represent God. Could adjust the differences so that hostility would be removed and peace could be restored. And that's what Jesus did by shedding his blood on the cross. Because when he shed his blood, he was taking all of our sin upon himself and he was dying in our place. And the father saw that death as being sufficient for the penalty and now stands before all of mankind and said, because of what my son has done in adjusting our differences, if you'll just come to me and confess your sin, I'll be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus has taken the hostility away and he's brought peace between man and God. Aren't you thankful for that today? In Jesus' name, he is our reconciler. But listen, he even takes it further than that. Listen to what he says in verse 22. In the body of his flesh, and he's talking about Jesus, in his body, through death, he died to present you to God, holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Come on, just think about that. Let me ask, how many of you today, by a show of hands, would say, I'm blameless? (laughs) How many of you would self-identify as being above reproach? And yet in Jesus Christ, you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach in the sight of Almighty God. Does anybody get excited about it? I mean, think about all you've done, but in Christ, 
He presents you before a holy father, blameless and above reproach. I remember what uh, Jude wrote in verse 24 of his letter. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Again, how many of you would self-identify as being faultless? Not a one, not a taker again. But in Jesus Christ, you are faultless. You are holy. You are blameless. You are above reproach in His sight. That is the essence of forgiveness. Forgiveness is to lay aside the penalty and to treat you as if you had never sinned before. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on. He is our reconciler. Can you thank God for that? In Jesus' name. But listen, did you notice as we were reading these things, the scope of the reconciliation? Because Paul did not say that Jesus was just reconciling man to himself. He said, by him to reconcile, say this with me, all things to himself. He didn't come just to reconcile man to himself, but he came to reconcile all things, which again goes back to all creation. He came to reconcile all things to himself. Which means that reconciliation extends to all created things. To all creation, because all creation was actually subjected to death and decay because of sin and rebellion, whether ours or the angels that rebelled against God originally in heaven. You know, stay with me for just a moment, because I said it would take a while for me to unpackage this. The great tragedy of our day is our unwillingness to grasp and take ownership, not only of our transgressions against God, but the consequences of our transgression against God. And on one hand, I can understand that. We live in a culture today that has numbed us to the seriousness of sin. I mean, come on, let's, let's be honest. We live in a culture today that celebrates sin, that rewards sin, that passes legislation to protect sinners so that they can keep sinning. I mean, we live in a society today where our heroes are those who sin greatly and the villains are those who stand for anything that is right and holy. I mean, that's the reality. We live in a culture today that calls what is holy profane and what is profane they call holy. We are all messed up. We will, you know, we, we will condemn those who are right and we will exalt those who are wrong. Just a few weeks ago, our vice president, Pence, who is a professing believer, and it appears that he really is serious about his faith, he took heat because he actually said, I would never go out to lunch with another woman. I don't know if you heard about that. He was ridiculed because he said, I would never be with another woman alone. I would never take her out to lunch. And they condemned him for that statement. We live in a culture that celebrates the adulterer but actually looks down upon the one who lives in a monogamous relationship. Isn't it just twisted? And so it's very easy to see how we've lost sight of how evil and deviant sin is. Can I just tell you, our sins never just affect us. 
They affect everyone and everything. Before you engage in sin, please remember the following. First, sin grieves the heart of God. First and foremost, sin always grieves the heart of God. For some reason, Christians just think that God isn't affected by sin anymore. He sees a sin and just says, ah. Listen, folks. Every time we sin, it grieves the heart of God. The Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed unto salvation. We cannot even begin to calculate the sorrow and the depth of grief that God has experienced as a result of man's sin and continuation in willful rebellion against him and his kingdom. Secondly, sin has brought decay into the physical world and the universe. Even the physical world and the universe are decaying as a result of our sin against God. You may remember that right after Adam and Eve had sinned against God, God pronouncing judgment says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Up until that point, Adam and Eve only had to harvest there was no weeding. There were no weeds to weed. There was nothing they had to do. They just simply had to harvest. And God had made it so that everything was replenishing itself for their desires, for their, uh, for their needs. But when man sinned, because man had been given dominion over the earth, all that was under man's dominion was cursed as well. So even the ground became cursed. So ladies, when you're doing your gardening this year, and guys, when you're doing the garden, and you just get mad at those weeds and you know the thorns and the thistles, blame Adam and Eve, right? Okay, that's where it all started. That's where the earth began to decay. And it really didn't ramp up until after the flood, but it was at that point that death and decay came into the earth. That's what gave birth to tsunamis and tornadoes and, and uh, earthquakes and all of these natural disasters are the direct result of man's sin and the ground and the universe being cursed because of it. Paul actually expounded on that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. He says, and listen to these words. I'm going to break it down here quickly. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creation. This is all of creation. They earnestly expect and eagerly wait for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, I'm not going to go into this really in depth, but the revealing of the sons of God will be the day when those who have believed upon Jesus Christ receive their glorified body and for eternity are revealed as the sons and the daughters of God. And the Bible says that all of creation is eagerly waiting for that. That the immaterial world is looking for the day when we are revealed as the sons of God. Now why would that be? Why would the universe care about our revelation as the sons and the daughters of God? For, he says... The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, or was subjected to death, not willingly because it doesn't have a will, but because of him, God, who subjected it. And like I said, when we sinned against God, the earth was cursed as well. Not willingly, but because of our sin, God subjected it to death. But did you notice those next words? He subjected it to death in hope in hope of a better day. There is a sense even in 
this material world within all of creation that does not have conscience, there is a sense that there is hope of redemption, that there is hope of reconciliation. I love that idea. He says, because the creation itself, all of creation itself, will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So what he's saying is, when we cast off the chains of this earth and we step into the glory of Almighty God and we are revealed as the sons of God, that all of creation is also going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption that it has been under as well. For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So every time you see a a volcano erupt, or you hear of an earthquake, or you hear of a tsunami, or a tornado, or a hurricane, and natural disasters, and famines, and, and, uh, and droughts. Whenever you hear of those things, and the devastation that they bring, just remember that all of creation is groaning and laboring with birth pains, because it's waiting for a day of reconciliation. Even the heavens have been corrupted. We know And we have known, I believe it was in the 20s, that the universe itself is dying out. It's fading. We know that there is less energy in the universe today than there was at the very beginning. We know that the universe is winding down. It is decaying. And even though scientists have said it is billions of years away, the reality is that can happen overnight because it's God who's holding it all together in the first place. And the Bible says that in the days leading up to the coming of the Lord, this planet and even the heavens are going to begin to come apart. Now, I'm not going to read you all the scriptures on that, but just listen to the generalization that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 25. He says, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. And upon the earth there will be distress, trouble, and anguish of nations in bewilderment and perplexity without resources, left wanting, embarrassed, in doubt, not knowing which way to turn, at the roaring, the echo of the tossing of the sea. Literally what it is saying is that because the universe is going to come apart before their very eyes, men and women will absolutely be bewildered, will swoon away and expire with fear and dread, and that Comprehension and expectation of things that are coming upon the world because there'll be nothing they can do to stop it. For even the powers of the heavens will be shaken and will caused to totter. John, in the book of Revelation, saw plagues. He saw stars falling from the sky. He saw the heavens rolled up like a scroll, planets plummeting out of their existence. He saw fresh water becoming poison. He saw grass burning up as the sun scorched it because of its heat. But at one point, he starts seeing the sun losing its energy, and all of a sudden, the the temperatures begin to plummet dramatically. The whole universe is in a state of decay because of man's sin against God. And third, sin has even affected the invisible kingdom of heaven. Did you know that? Sin is even affecting heaven today. Some of you say, oh, Pastor Kurt, come on. You don't honestly believe sin is affecting heaven. (laughs) Why does that shock you? We just said that God is grieved when we sin even today. Where is God's throne room? Heaven. 
We know that Jesus is our high priest. Whoever lives to intercede for the saints. And we have not a high priest who cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. But was at all points tempted just like we are and yet without sin. And so even in heaven while Jesus is interceding for us. He is being moved by what we're experiencing here on this earth. The heartaches, the struggles, the pains. So that is affecting Jesus in heaven. We know that the very first rebellion against God took place in heaven when the Satan and one third of the angels rebelled against God. They were cast down immediately, but that still impacted heaven. And, and Satan may or may not, we're not sure because of scriptures and how they can be interpreted. He may or may not even have access to God even to this day. And in Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 10, I believe it is, the martyrs are even standing before the throne of God and they are saying, Lord, how long before you judge the world and avenge our blood? So don't tell me that sin doesn't even affect heaven. It does. It's impacting heaven even as we speak today. Don't ever let for one moment Entertain a thought that sin only affects you. There's always more to it. What you see is just the tip of the iceberg. It is affecting everyone under you. It is affecting everything under you. It has devastating effects. It is a serious matter. But here is the good news. That in spite of all the decay that has come because of sin, Jesus shed his blood And when he shed his blood, he put into motion a total reconciliation process where God, through the blood, is reconciling all mankind and all created things to himself. Now, that doesn't mean that we believe in universal salvation, that everyone is going to be saved in the end, because who can be reconciled? Those who come through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But all of creation is going to be reconciled back, and everything is going to return to the way God originally intended it to be. And it is going to begin with us, when in a moment in the twinkling of an eye this mortal will put on immortality this corruptible will put on incorruption we'll have a glorified body that will never die that will never corrupt how many of you are looking for that day where there's no more sickness where there's no more aging where there's no more death for the glory of god And that resurrection, that will set into motion this reconciliation process because it doesn't end there. In 2 Peter 3, we read these words, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which, listen to this, the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Remember last week I told you that every atom in the universe is being held together by what scientists call a strong force but they don't understand it. They don't know what it is we know what it is it is jesus christ who's holding every atom together by the power of god but what it appears here is that one day he's going to let go of all the atoms and immediately the heavens and the earth will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat as sad as that sounds nevertheless he says we who have believed upon christ according to his promise are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells god has promised that he is going to destroy the existing heavens, the existing earth, and he's going to make a brand new heaven, a brand new earth, and therein will be righteousness forevermore for the glory and for the honor of Almighty God. I can't wait for that day. Is there anybody with me this morning? 
Bless God. Now, now listen, this is what John saw when when he was in heaven and he was given this incredible revelation. In 21 verses 1 and 4 he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth come. And in that moment he says, God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now listen, this is my belief I can't necessarily show it to you, but this is what I see as I look at all of Scripture. I believe that when He wipes away the last tear from our eye, He will wipe away every painful memory. And all we will ever remember after that is the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You know, some people struggle. How will I ever have joy in my heart when I know that I have loved ones that are suffering separated from God. My personal belief is in that moment, he'll wipe away the last tear and he'll wipe away the memories of those individuals so that all you will remember is the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And in this new heaven and in this new earth, there'll be no more crying. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more dying. There'll be no more migraines. There'll be no more aches. There'll be no more pains. There'll be no more sad goodbyes. We will be with our Lord and our Savior forever and forever and forever. Folks, beyond that, there is no hope. I am thankful for the hope we have in Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. And that's why Paul closes out this section with these words. If, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. You know, today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem amidst the praises of men and women. The tragedy of that is that less than a week later, the same crowd that was crowning Jesus king cried out for his crucifixion. They did not continue. They did not remain grounded and steadfast, but were moved and swayed away from the hope that they sought in Jesus Christ. As your pastor, I wish I could say that everyone here this morning that has been praising the Lord and listening will be with us in the end, but I simply can't tell you that. Because tragically, many of you even here today will be moved at some point By the ways of this world. Like Jesus said, the cares of this life are going to choke out the word of God. And you are going to fall away or follow after an easier Jesus than the Jesus that is revealed in scripture. Paul certainly did not assume that everyone that was listening to his letter being read was going to be in. He said you must continue. If you continue, this hope will be yours. If you don't, there is no hope. I don't know how far to go with this, but 
For hundreds of years, the prevailing theology in the Christian faith was Reformed theology. I don't have time to go into all of this. There are many points, many points of Reformed theology that I do not agree with. But what they taught for years, years, was that if you were truly saved, you would continue in the faith. You would not be moved. Sadly, somehow, that morphed into what we call today, once saved, always saved. The idea that I can come to an altar, and as long as I say the prayer and ask Jesus into my heart, it doesn't matter what I do, I can never lose my salvation. Folks, that is a lie of a lie of a lie. Paul certainly did not believe that. He said, if you continue in these things, if you are grounded, if you're steadfast to the very end, I stand before you today and tell you there is no other name given by which man may be saved but the name of Jesus. Stay steadfast in him, grounded in him. Continue to the very end because it will be worth it all in Jesus' mighty name. There's a wonderful scene that Paul saw in Revelation 4 where he says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, listen to this, and by your will they exist and were created. You know why you're here today? Because God willed you to be here. Do you know why you live? Because God willed you to live. You know why you're breathing right now? Because God willed you to breathe. You were created for his pleasure. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. The Bible says... I love this scene, I always have, that in heaven they're going to cast their crowns down at his feet. You know as well as I do that crowns represent the rewards that the faithful receive at the end. But you notice no one's wearing their crown in heaven. Because they look into the eyes of Jesus and they throw them at his feet because they know that it's all for his glory. And it was all because of him that we did it anyway. We'll throw our crowns. No one in heaven is wearing their crown saying, look what I've done. They're all throwing their crowns at the feet of Jesus and saying, look what he has done. He has saved me. He has healed me. He has delivered me for his glory. Folks, he is our deliverer. He is our redeemer. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the creator of all things. He is the head of the church, firstborn from the dead. He is the preeminent one, the fullness of God. He is our reconciler. There is none but Christ. He is worthy of our praise. Let's give him our praise this morning. Can you stand? Hallelujah. Come on, give him praise in this house. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We bless your name, O Lord. Can you just lift up your hands to him and just in these closing moments, can you give him all the praise and all the glory? We worship you. Come on, lift up your voice. 
Don't do it silently. All heaven is going to reverberate with the praises of his people. Let's praise him now. Hallelujah. We magnify your name, Lord Jesus.